Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing this morning? We're doing all right. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate that. Um, one person's excited to be here. Uh, I know it's kind of weather and all that stuff, but and some of you are like, hey, I, I, I came for the first time last week. Where's the choir? Where's the, you know what I mean? Well, this is, this is a, a normal Sunday here at Veritas. We're glad you're here. One of the things we do is um, we worship Jesus. Uh, we, we talk about how he's conquered death, how he loves us, and we open his word and, and hear from him. We're going through the book of Revelation, and we're in Revelation chapter 20. I'll give you a moment to open there or turn on your phone to there or whatever. It's the last book of the Bible, easy one to find. But um, one of my favorite questions to ask people is this question. This is, a great, uh, this is a great question. It works in almost any situation on any person because everyone has an opinion about this. But just a question, what is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? I love that question. It's not threatening. Everyone has an opinion on it. I get the most fascinating answers. I was helping a friend jumpstart his lawnmower because, you know, everyone's pulling out their, their mowers, um, you know, from, from winter and the battery was dead. And I asked, I asked my friend this question, hey, What's wrong with the world today? And he just goes off. He's like, ah, oh, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. And politicians, the government corrupts politicians. And, and uh, so I said, wow, well, if you were king, how, do you, how would you fix it? If you had the iron scepter and you could just get your way, how would you fix it? He's like, well, it's easy. Get our politicians in power. And then we'd clean this up, right? We'd fix this whole thing. And right after he says that, moments later, he clips on the jumper cable onto the wrong terminal. <laughs> Boom! Flash of light right in my face. And uh, I, I'm amazed that I'm still here to tell about it. And I thought, wow. For a guy who can't jumpstart his own lawnmower and connect red to red and black to black, you seem pretty confident that you can fix the world, right? Uh, and then I got to thinking about it is, I'm the same way. I have tons of opinions. And if I had the Iron Scepter, uh, I'm sure I would be able to fix everything in the world, right? But we, we, we all understand some. This is what I love about these questions is one, it reveals that we all agree about something. Democrat, Republican, you know, no matter what culture you're from, we, we all agree that something is wrong with the world. And number two, pick your topic, climate change, poverty, sex trafficking, incompetent, unqualified government. If we're honest, we all can agree. None of us are really smart enough to fix it. And we're not even sure if we could nominate a really good person and give them all the power in the world and the iron scepter. We, we know that's probably still not a good idea, right? I have good news for you this morning as we open Revelation 20. Here's the good news. Jesus knows how to fix the world. That is great news for us this morning. Jesus knows how to fix the world. How is he going to do it? Let's find out. Revelation 
chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who are given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not and because of the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image, who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Uh, some of you guys are listening. You're like, I was here last week. I, I could understand that. This week, I don't think I understand a word you just said. A thousand years. Wait, what's going to happen? Okay, growing up, I have to tell you about my church experience. Growing up, uh, the pastor did a, a Sunday night service. Like back in my day, um, we had to like walk up <laughs> uphill both ways to church, like five times a week, right? We went, and we went twice on Sundays, one on Wednesday, whenever the church doors were open, we were there. Um, and, and the Sunday night, it was going through end times, the book of Revelation. And I remember it was as a little kid sitting through that, and he'd be talking about the end times, and he'd put these charts up on the, on the um, well, we didn't have screens, uh, but he would just have these charts, printed out charts, and, and, uh, I remember it was really controversial because our pastor was changing his view from a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture to a mid-tribulation, pre-wrath rapture. And I remember everyone was upset and people were talking about it and how could he change his views? And some of you are like, I don't know what any of those words mean. And neither did I when I was little and I still kind of don't. Um, but. It's, it was all so confusing to me. And this is the passage where we get all those charts and ideas from. So I'm going to do my best to explain to you uh, what this is all about. Now, this is the only time in the Bible that we hear about this 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, let me just ask. I'm going to take a quick poll so I know my audience, who I'm talking to. Now, how many of you... Are, are people that are like, because a lot of you are new to church and new to the Bible, and you're just like, I just want to learn stuff. But some of you are like coming in with ideas and opinions about this. So how many of you would say, um, I, not only have I heard about this, like the millennium, I actually, you know, kind of understand it and maybe even having a little bit of an opinion about it. Like how many of you, raise your hand if that's you. Like just, you're like, yeah, I, I kind of know about this. Like, so, okay. Not very many. So for those of us that wouldn't have put up our hands, this, is, this explanation is for you. This is funny. I was reading this in commentaries. And one guy, one commentator, a theologian says, Revelation 20 is a constant source of insurmountable difficulty. It's like 
The Mount Everest of the Bible. Uh, people die trying to figure it out. Uh, another theologian says it's one of the most controversial and intriguing questions of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. Okay, throughout church history, there have been three main views of Revelation chapter 20. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, for those of you who are like, Dude, this is, I'm nervous. I don't know if I want to summit that mountain. Just, just shut your brain off for a little bit and come, we'll, I'll let you know when you come back in. Uh, but let's start premillennialism. Now we're going to start basic. Premillennialism. What's pre mean? Before. Okay, if you didn't get that, definitely shut your brain off for the rest. Okay, <laughs> pre means before. Millennium means a thousand years. So this view believes that Jesus is going to return before the millennium, before this 1,000 years. And what he's going to do is he's going to bind Satan during those 1,000 years, and Jesus is going to physically reign on earth, planet earth, during the 1,000 years. At the end of the 1,000 years, Satan is going to be set loose from the bottomless pit for one last final battle, that final Armageddon battle. That's premillennialism. And within there is a lot of you know, rapture and other things. But that's just a, a kind of a, a junk drawer view of junk drawer. It's not bad. Just, just uh, that kind of covers a lot of views within that. Now let's move to the next view of the millennium. Postmillennialism. Post. What does post mean? Are you with me? It means after. Awesome. Okay. So this view believes that Christ's return is after the thousand years. So the millennium is a time when Christ is reigning in heaven. And as the gospel advances on earth, as the gospel redeems culture, the world is renewed and life on earth improves. As Christians live out salt and light in the world, the world improves. And then at the end of that time, Christ returns to earth. View number three. Ah, millennialism. This is a little more complicated. Ah, in, in Greek, in language, it like is a term that negates whatever comes after it. So ah means like not. So ah, millennialism, not the millennium. And it's actually uh, kind of a misnomer because it's not that, that ah, millennialists don't believe in the millennium. They just believe that we're currently in the millennium, that it's symbolic of our present experience on earth where the gospel is going out and Satan is bound so that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, every tribe, tongue, nation. And then in that sense, Satan is not going to be able to stop the progress of the gospel and then Jesus will return. All right, so that's as far as we're going to go. At this point, I'm going to put this up on the screen. If you're interested in learning more about this, uh, take a picture of this right here. Okay, this is a really smart theologian talking about it, and uh, he has a little bit higher ACT score than me, and uh, so he can explain all things to you. Uh, get out your phone and take a picture because this is going down. Uh, you can scan the QR code and get the link and all that if you want to learn more about the millennium. Now, I'm going to leave this up for a second. What view does Veritas take on this? What is the official Veritas view on the millennium? I don't know. 
Here's why I don't know, because it depends on what elder you talk to and what day of the week and what time of the day you talk to them. Okay, so here's the good news. And some of you guys are like, Mark, what's your view? Well, I'm not going to tell you because it doesn't really matter. Here's the thing. I do have an opinion, but it doesn't really matter all that much. You should study this. You should read about it, learn about it, and, and, you know, have an opinion, but don't be too dogmatic about it. It's not that important. All these views are, are consistent within Orthodox Christianity. But this, the millennium, is not the blessed hope. So you don't, it's not about eternity. It's about this thousand years. So let's go on to verse 7. Stuff that we do need to be pretty clear on. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Let's stop here. This is a reference to Ezekiel 38 through 39. Gog and Magog. Gog, it really would be Gog of Magog, because Gog is a reference to a prince from this godless land to the north, the land of Magog. And some people, if you've heard like, yeah, there's gonna be a one final battle in Jerusalem. Like some people, when I was growing up, they thought it was the USSR. They were gonna come down because they're from the north and they're gonna have this final battle, right? In the plains of Megiddo or whatever in Israel and they're gonna fight the Armageddon battle, um, uh, maybe. Uh, but that's where they get this idea from. And it says their number is like the sand of the sea. Okay, Gog is, is symbolic of all of the people that live in rebellion against God. And it's this huge army. And John describes it as, it's as vast as the sand on the sea. Now, as a Christian living on planet Earth, do you ever feel outnumbered? You ever feel that way? You are. That's why you feel that way, because you are outnumbered. Like the sand of the sea. When you go to the beach and you stand on the beach, like you're outnumbered by sand. There's a lot of sand there. That's how John describes this final battle. That's how powerful this satanic army is. Satan, all his minions, all the people that follow him. Verse 9, they came up across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Now, at this point, God's people are trapped, outnumbered, surrounded by Satan's army. Now, I'm starting to get a little nervous. How is this battle going to end? Will evil win? Second part of verse nine. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You're like, wait a minute. I've got a bunker and I've been prepping for this battle. And it just ends like that? It's like fire just gone. I mean, there's a whole lot of world history. There's a whole lot of 
Redemptive history there, and just like it only takes half of a verse for God to just end it all. Seems a little anticlimactic. First thing, this is the good news. Jesus is going to fix the world. How's he going to do it? Two things. Point number one, how Jesus will fix the world. One, he will judge Satan. He will judge Satan. We know this from Ephesians 6 that Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle, our wrestle match is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Like, you get it, right, if you're a Christian. Like, your, your enemy is not your neighbor or that person on the other side of Facebook or in the comment section. Like, that's not your enemy, really. I mean, it's Satan, right? He's the bad guy. Back to Genesis 2, the serpent. Remember how this whole thing got started? Like, Satan is the enemy. We can see the evidence of evil, but we don't know the source of it. And we're powerless to deal with the source of it, right? You and all your guns, if you face a demon, won't help you. Because this is a spiritual issue. And Jesus will deal with the problem, the source of the problem, Satan. Okay, about 10 years ago, uh, we're still kind of new in our house. We've been there a few years. And uh, I walked out on the back porch. And something happened to me that's just never happened to me in my life before or since that time. I stepped out on the back porch. I go out, my coffee, I sit down. And all of a sudden, it was like springtime, nice day, had some shorts on. And I see crawling up my leg, these little black dots. And it was like, I just watched like an army of them. And all of a sudden the other foot, and they start crawling up my leg, these little black dots. All of a sudden it looked like I had like pants on. They were like covering my leg, but black dots, like two, they were smaller than those no gnats. You know what I mean? And I'm looking at these things like, what is going on? So I start freaking out, brushing them off. I run inside and get a camera because I'm like, I can't even see these things. I take a picture and like zoom in on it. And you look like these little, it looks like a little tick. And we're calling bug specialists. We're trying to figure out what is going on in our, on our back porch. And the bug people couldn't figure it out. Nobody could figure it out. One, one bug specialist said it, it might be like maybe a raccoon went by and it's spring and maybe a, a bunch of ticks like dropped off, laid it. Like we, we don't know what these are. Those look like little ticks, but they're so tiny. And days went by, weeks went by, and our problem got worse to the point where if you went into the backyard, just stepped onto the lawn, just poof, army of little black dots crawling up. Wait, what's going on? I was ready to burn my house down, right? <laughs> to, to save my marriage, okay? Um, right? Anything at this point. Finally, we send it in to an entomologist at another university in the state that will go unnamed because I hate to, to admit that it took someone from this other university to figure out our problem. Um, this entomologist said, oh, I know what that is. You have a bird's nest somewhere on your back porch. 
you have like a raised deck. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a bird's nest. Those are bird mites. I was like, so that's my problem. Now, from the moment that I found out what the problem was to the moment I went and dealt with the problem, like how long, about how long do you think it took? We're talking seconds, okay? I went down, took my phone down. I'm like, yep, there it is. I know how to deal with that. It took me about as long as Revelation 20, verse 9, to deal with my, my army of bug mite problem. Boom, I dealt with the bird's nest, and the bird mite army was gone. Seconds it took me. I eliminated that army by dealing with the source, that bird, that nest that was wreaking havoc in our house. What is impossible for us? Judging, condemning, deciding who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, how to deal with the world's problems, that stuff that's impossible for us is so easy for God. Do you see how quickly he just deals with evil? So I have a question for you, and it's a trick question, so don't answer too quickly and boldly. Who is the opposite of God? Now, let me ask you this way, because this might clarify. Who's the opposite of Jesus? Now, some of you, and I told you it was a trick question, because you want to say Satan, right? The opposite of Jesus is Satan. No, that's not true. Nobody created Jesus. Jesus is God. Satan is a created being. He's the opposite of Satan might be like Michael the archangel or something like that, but some created being. Like, here's what I want to say to you. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Whatever it is that you're afraid of or anxious about in your life right now, if you know God, like you have nothing to worry about. If you're afraid of the end times and how's this going to go down and, you know, do I have enough canned soup in our bunker or whatever, like, don't worry. Jesus wins and it's easy for him. And if you know him, you have nothing to worry about. That's great news. And it gets even more clear here in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Have you ever talked about when I stand before that great white throne? That's, this is the verse it comes from. The great white throne. Why is it white? Because we've been studying through Revelation. What is white a symbol of? Purity, perfection, holiness, righteousness, Right? His judgments are not like ours. We're always tempted by selfish motives, working angles, sinful, not God. His is a great white throne. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. 
Each one was judged according to their works. Okay, do you see what's going on here? Every person that's, you know, people that died at sea, right? Those people are raised from the dead. Everyone that's been martyred, everyone that's ever lived and died, every single person, great and small, like we've got kings, we've got people living in poverty, we've got everybody, like every human that's ever lived standing before God, and these books are open. What's in these books? These books, it's like a log book. Every thought, every action, every motive, every word, Every sin is recorded in these books. And what's amazing about these books is nothing has escaped the notice of God. Because one of my biggest issues in the world, when I go to Zambia and I come back, you know what my biggest struggle is? Like this world is not fair. I have a hard time even carrying on living in America because I'm like, why am I so blessed and they live in such poverty and injustice and hardship, suffering? This world is not fair. Good news. If you believe in God, he's taking note. He gets it. You don't need to worry about that. You can entrust the judgment part to God because he's all the injustice, all the sin that was never confessed, crimes that were never punished. It's here in these books. Not a single injustice that has gone unnoticed. Verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. This is the second death the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. These have to be some of the most sobering verses in the whole Bible. I hear people talk about cancer or something terrible, and, and they'll say something like, to hell with cancer, something like that. And you're like, absolutely. Like, I hate how that has stolen life away. Or they'll say that, to hell with whatever injustice or thing that they hate. And, and this is, here's the, this, this moment here in Revelation 20 is so beautiful because God's saying, yes, to hell with all of that. Like, and not, in, and not in a crass, irreverent way. I mean, hell in the way that the Bible talks about it. Like, death will be thrown into hell. That's what this is. No, here's the tension of this. How many of you want Jesus to step in and fix this world? I mean, I, I do. Every day I do. Here's the problem. I want Jesus to fix the problems in the world, but I'm one of the problems in the world. If you were king and 
you had that iron scepter and you were able to create the perfect government. If I'm a citizen of that government, it's no longer perfect because I'm there. I'm gonna mess it all up. Or if you create the perfect business and I'm one of your employees, it's not perfect anymore because I show up for work. If you create the perfect church, you know, because Veritas, you're like, ah, I kind of like the services. The more I get to know you guys, I think I could do a little better than that. And you start your own church and I decide to show up at your church. Don't let me in. Because as soon as I show up, it's not a perfect church anymore. And I'm like, Jesus, come back, come back. Fix this world. And I'm in it. So we have seen here in this text that Satan is the one inspiring this evil from page one of the Bible, the serpent in the garden. Satan is the one inspiring the evil, but who actually carries it out and does the evil? I do. It's us. It's people. So how does Jesus fix the world? Point number two, he will judge you. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man once to die and then to face judgment. This is a problem for us. This, I, I have no greater problem in my life right now than this. Verse 13, it says, each one was judged according to their works. Now, some of you guys are like, now, wait a minute. I don't, I've read the Bible, and you're telling me that the Bible teaches that we are judged by our works? Like, is there some cosmic balance scale where if you put the good on one side and it kind of outweighs the bad, then God will let you into heaven? Is that what Revelation 20 teaches? Like, he judges them according to their works. It says right there. All right, so here's the message, and we're going to pray. As you leave this place, I want you to try harder. I want you to be better. I want you to do good deeds and just be better human beings, would you? Okay, let's pray, right? Is that what Revelation 20 teaches? Okay, when you're confused about what a verse means, you just zoom out, let the Bible interpret the Bible. We've gone through Revelation. Let's let John interpret what he means because he's the one writing this Revelation. Let's go back and just, just take a survey of what we've read in Revelation. 25 times in the book of Revelation, he's referenced the lamb, the lamb. Let me take you back. Revelation 5, verse 6. These aren't gonna come up on the screen, so you can write them down. Revelation 5, 6, remember the slaughtered lamb at the center of the throne? Remember chapter 6, verse 1, only the lamb was worthy to open the scroll. Remember the scroll is like the title deed to the earth, all of history, and no one was worthy, and the lamb comes and starts slitting the scrolls and unrolling it. He's got authority over history. What about 
Revelation 7, verse 14, that says, they washed their robes and made them white, how? In the blood of the lamb. 12, 11, they conquered the accuser, Satan, how? By the blood of the lamb. 19, 9, he said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. 1913, remember, he comes riding in on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. And what color is his robe? Like all the people following him are in white fine linen. But what color was Jesus' robe? It was red. Why? Because it was soaked in blood, right? The lamb, his cloak was soaked in blood. Verse Uh, Chapter 21, verse 27, next chapter, Book of Life is also called the Lamb's Book of Life. Here's the question. Why all this lamb language? This girl came to Salt Company, our college ministries, uh, probably, probably nine years ago, and she had never been to church before. And she walked in. I was like, what'd you think? And she's like, I don't understand why you guys are singing about lambs all the time. What's all this lamb stuff? When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking into the room in John chapter one, what does he say about Jesus? John one, John the Baptist. He looks at Jesus and he says what? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why all this lamb language? Because Jesus conquers evil with sacrifice. We conquer evil by trying to get power and exert it over other people. Jesus came and he overcame evil by letting go. And he let the father walk him like a lamb to the cross, Isaiah 53. This innocent lamb was led to the slaughter. He sheds his blood on the cross. Why? Because of my sin problem. That's why. And if you've read this book, you know there's a lot of blood in here, right? Why? Why do Jewish people still just got done finishing the Passover, which coincides with Easter? What is the Passover? Remember the blood smeared over the doorposts, frames of the house? Why? So the angel of destruction would pass over those who were under the blood of the lamb. The only way to stand in the day of judgment is to stand under the blood of the lamb, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's two ways to stand before God on the day of judgment. Way number one would be to say, before the great white throne, my righteousness is enough to get me in. So one way would be self-righteousness. 
The other way would be to stand under the blood of the lamb and say, not my righteousness, but thanks be to Jesus Christ who has saved me by grace. And in John chapter five, he references, I believe, Revelation chapter 20 ahead of time. Look at John five, and I want you to hear it from Jesus himself. He says this, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word, that's all of you in the room, you're hearing it, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and what? Will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's the gospel. That's great news for us. We don't have to worry about condemnation. Verse 26, for just as a father has life in himself, so also he has granted the son to have life in himself. Verse 27, and he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Revelation 20, right? Verse 29, and they will come out those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus is teaching us here that everyone that's ever lived is gonna be resurrected. Some to a resurrection of life. Others to a resurrection of condemnation. Everyone's gonna be judged, but not everyone's gonna be condemned. And Jesus tells us how to escape condemnation. It is the blood of Christ. Believing, hearing and believing. So let me ask this question as we close. Is Revelation 20 good news to you? Are you hearing this as good news? I am. Because this is the moment I've been waiting for my whole life when Jesus will step in and fix the world. And I know what I'm clothed in, white robes. Why? Not because of me, because of him. The lamb did it for me. If you are in Christ, this is incredible news. And this is what we mean when we say, I've been saved. I don't have to worry about this condemnation thing. Jesus is going to fix the world. He's going to put an end to unqualified government and the leaders. He's going to end crime and injustice. And we're going to see in the next couple weeks what this new heavens is going to be like. But are you under the blood of the lamb? Would you pray with me as we close? This Revelation 20 is a massive fork in the road. You are at a fork in the road this morning. And I just have great news for you. This is what we call grace. Grace is a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to try harder, be better, do better. And just receive it, the gift, the blood of Christ shed for you. As we close in worship, would you just, maybe some of you for the very first time in your life, you're gonna sing these words and you're gonna be like, I'm under the blood of the Lamb. And for the first time, the return of Jesus is gonna be good news for you. 
that you're going to receive him. Would you just receive him? Transfer your trust to him. Say, Jesus, I've been living my own life, and, and today oh, I open my hands and I say, here, Lord, take me, take all of me. Let's worship Jesus as we close.